almighty and eternal God. So draw our hearts to you, so guide our minds, so fill our imaginations, so control our wills, that we may be wholly yours, utterly dedicated to you. And then use us, we pray, as you will, and always to your glory and the welfare of your people. Through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, last time we introduced this section on belong, or, uh, becoming like Christ by talking about the place of the Ten Commandments in the Christian life. What, is, uh, what are the moral commands uh, of that, that are given to us in the scriptures? Uh, and the Ten Commandments, as we learned, come from Moses. They're given in the book of Exodus, right when uh, Israel leaves Egypt, crosses the Red Sea, enters into the desert. God says, this is what covenant life with me looks like. This is the shape of your life in relation to my life. This is how you become to, to look like me. God refers to Israel as my son, and he says, this is what it looks like to be a son of God. Uh, and then we also talked about how Christ is the fulfillment of that image of God's sonship, right? If, uh, if the Ten Commandments sketch the outline of the moral life, Christ gives us the filled-in picture, all its colors and details and, and, and what it looks like. So we're using the Ten Commandments here throughout this um, section on catechesis as a way to further, to build the outline, to build this foundation of the moral life, um, and we're going to go kind of piece by piece. We're going to go one commandment at a time and linger over these a bit and to see where, where is Christ in this and what is God calling us uh, to live into. So we're going to um, begin with uh, the section on the first commandment today, which begins on question 268 on page 93. Question 268. What is the first commandment? First commandment is, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. I think we talked about this a little bit last time. But notice it doesn't begin with you shall not. Right? We'll have a lot of shall nots, but it begins first of all with this one fundamental idea. I am the Lord your God. Right? I am the Lord your God. And so there's two parts to this first commandment. I am the Lord your God you shall have no other gods. So that's the two parts we're going to delve into. The next question gets us into the first part of that. Question 269. What does it mean that the Lord is your God? It means that I have faith that the God of the Bible is the only true God and that I entrust myself to him wholly. So again, there's a lot going on in this passage. First, it begins with a statement of faith. This is um, a posture that, that we enter into a relationship with God with. I have faith that the God of the Bible is the only true God. One could say that you could uh, deduce by logic that there is only one God and lots of most People, Christian and non-Christian, um, or I should say many people <laughs> in history, Christian and non-Christian traditions, 
have argued and would say that's the sort of only logically coherent position, depending on what you mean by God, which we'll get into. Um, but these are largely that, uh, nonetheless, whether that's arguable or not, um, we're entering into this through, through a posture of faith, of faith-seeking understanding. So we begin with this, this uh, claim that there is one God, and, we, and then we say, well, what does that mean? Well, there's two parts to this. The God of the Bible is the only true God, which is, again, a sort of statement about reality, a statement about what is. What is the case? One true God. And there's a second part of this, which is a more existential part of it. I entrust myself to him wholly. So this commandment has two aspects in it. One, a statement about what you might call metaphysics, a statement about the state of things, the state of reality. What is the case? One true God. But then that's one thing to say that, and then another thing to explore what it means to to live in that way. So what does it mean to say that God is the only true God? One way of looking at this, which would be, I think, sort of how we've largely come to see things, is to say that, well, there are God, there are lots of things in the universe, one of which is God. And there are there is the God of the Bible, and then there's, there's lots of other gods. There's the, the Greek pantheon and the Roman pantheon of gods. Um, and there's sort of all sorts of things in between. God is one sort of thing within the universe. And, that's, and we just say, no, no, no. God is the only one of those kinds of, of things in the universe. Right? That would be one way of looking at this and probably the more, more common way of looking at things today. And so many sort of skeptics of the faith look at that and say, well, I don't believe in um, Zeus, and uh, I don't believe in Santa Claus, uh, and so I don't believe in the God of the Bible either. Right? Because of the, this is the category, this is the framework in which you're thinking. God is one kind of thing within the world. He's one me, you, this church, this bench, Zeus, Santa Claus. Some of those are real. Some of those are not real. Um, I choose not to believe in Santa Claus, the Easter Bunny, God. But I do believe in this chair. Right? This is one kind of way. I'm setting, setting this up here. right? Setting this up as one, our, our probably predominant framework in modernity. This has a lovely little historical uh, genealogy, how we get to this state of things, but um, I'll spare you that detail unless you really want to know. You got to really desire that one. Taylor, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this would be something, this is, yeah, so the Brazos fellows do a, do a long, do, do this historical work where they understand how we got from more classical conception of what it means to say that there's only one God, which we'll get to in, in a minute. And then in more uh, the modern age, how we've come to think of God as one kind of thing among other things. There's only one kind of being, being as such. Everything exists in this kind of thing. God is one sort of thing within the world. The more classical way of understanding this, and again, this is not only Christian tradition. This is, uh, but it, it does tend to be the monotheistic phase. 
So Jewish, Muslim philosophers would say that's nonsense, that way of saying God is one sort of thing in the world. They say that, that's not the kind of thing we're talking about when we're talking about God. What we're talking about when we're talking about God, the very category of divinity, is by definition not something that occupies space in this kind of cosmos. It is the source of things that exist. It is what the classical philosophers would say, being itself, true being. What it means to say that something exists and where we get our own conception of what it means to exist, to live in the world, comes from this higher source, what we would call a transcendent source. So we're saying, well, that is just the very category of what it means to say God, to use the language of divinity, to use the language of God, is to say there's a source of being and there's everything else that exists by the fact of that one essential being, the being that exists because it's the only thing that doesn't need something else to depend on in order to exist. This microphone is super today. Um, so, in that sort of framework, how would you say that that God doesn't exist? You would have to say, well, nothing exists. <laughs> to say that that sort of transcendent being exists, a being that gives life and, and being to everything, that gives existence to everything, is to say that nothing exists. <laughs> Does that make sense? To say that, because God is not one thing in the world, God is the source of being, so to, to say, well, I don't believe in God, is to say something like, I don't believe in existence. And you're like, well, I'm sorry, friend, I just can't help you there. Just, at some point, you have to say that nothing exists on that level, or there is a source of being. Now, we haven't got to say God is triune, became incarnate in Jesus Christ, and died for your sins, right? We're talking about two different things at this point. But nonetheless, that's the sort of larger framework in which we're trying to say what it, we're trying to get at what it means to say there's one true God. So this is um, where, so coming out of a sort of polytheistic culture, Christians came to say, well, there's this claim that's in the Jewish faith, there's one God, that's a sort of one of the most defining characteristics of, the, of Judaism is to say there is one God. Right? Christians articulated this and developed this within a context to say, well, to say that there's one God is to say that there's one source of existence. That is where we get anything that exists. So this is at least the first part of what it means to say that the Lord is your God, or as it means to say that the Lord is your God, is to say that there is one true God and that I entrust myself to him wholly. And again, so this is where faith enters. We, uh, we encounter, we entrust ourselves to God by, by faith uh, through the way that we, that we live, our actions, our attitudes, our hearts. This is how in which we entrust ourselves to, to this God. Um, but how do, we, how do we get there, right? How do we get from the sort of 
God is the source of all being to, I entrust myself to, to Jesus Christ. Why would you entrust yourself to this, you know, ab- very abstract, <laughs> what, I'm, <laughs> what I'm describing here, the source of all being? That, that's not the kind of God that in, uh, invites you into a personal relationship, a covenantal relationship. Um, but that is what we see in, in the scriptures. This God, the source of all being, is also the God who makes himself known to our forefathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a God who, who descends to make himself known, to call humans into relationship with him, we see the fullness of, of, of this in Jesus Christ, but before that, we see this also in the revelation to Moses when uh, Moses says, who do I say <laughs> sent me? God says, I am that I am. Right? This, I will be who I will be. This very difficult to translate phrase that comes in, uh, will come into scriptures as the, the name Yahweh, as this personal name, which comes from this statement, I am that I am, right? That phrase that Yahweh is translating this very difficult to, to translate passage, I am that I am. This God, the God of existence, the God who gives life and breath and everything to creatures, is the God who meets you face to face, calls you into relationship, calls you into covenant life and says, this is life with me. This is the true source of life. This is the life that you were created to live, and this is what it looks like to live this kind of life. And he gives Moses the Ten Commandments, uh, all those kind of things that we said last week. And he says, no other gods. So let's turn to that next question. Question 270. What does it mean to have no other gods? It means that there should be nothing in my life more important than God and obeying his will. I should worship him only and love, revere, and trust him above all else. So, I am the Lord your God. I am this God who calls you into relationship, who lives this covenant life with you. You shall have no other gods before me. And as so we'll come to say in the next commandment, because I'm a jealous God. We talked a little bit about this last week. This is, again, covenantal relationship in a marriage or in a, in a, in a parent-child relationship. Uh, there, is, there is a built-in exclusivity <laughs> to, that, to that covenant. Um, so if I am your God, if Yahweh is your God, he says, don't have any other gods before me. I think the, the Hebrew uh, of this phrase literally translates to something like, um, before my face there shall be no other. <laughs> right? There's this sense of um, presence in the temple, in God's dwelling place, in God's temple. There's going to be no other, no other gods, no other idols. Now, in the, the Hebrew context, there's, we read about lots of other gods populating the place, especially we meet the gods like Baal, right? We see these, these names frequently in, in the Bible, or Asherah, right? And then we see the surrounding nations with these, these various gods, 
who do different kinds of things for people. And we'll explore this both in the first and, and second commandment. But largely today, we, we find ourselves not very worried about uh, people saying, oh, I, have a, I have a, you go to this uh, Christ church, and that's a, that's a Christian church. Well, um, yeah, I'm a worshiper of Baal. You know, I, have, I have a little statue of Baal, and I have it in my basement. And when things get hard, I, I go down to the basement and worship Baal, and, and that's that. You don't meet those kind of folks often today at least not in Waco. Um, and yet, you know, this is actually, historically, this is sort of part of the, uh, it would not be the case around the world, right? But largely in Christian, uh, post-Christian cultures, like America and the UK, you don't have a lot of, uh, you know, self-confessed idol, idol worshipers, right? Uh, and yet, nonetheless, Christians have, have reflected on this and say, well, it's not just the fact that you have uh, statues, idols. Again, it's part of the second commandment as well. It's not just that you you worship these these specific figures with names that you give them. There's also what's more at stake is a sort of worship in the heart. So it's a reflection on the heart and what you care about most. What is the manner of your affections? What is your sort of main purpose and aim in life. What do you care about the most? And so in this question, it articulates this in terms of importance. There's nothing in my life more important than God and obeying his will. So there's this question about priority. What is most important in one's life? And then a sort of exact correlate to that is what do you do, <laughs> right? Obeying God's will. So there's nothing more important than God and obeying his will. Super, right? Get all, get all get on board with that. This next sentence, though, is, is quite interesting. I should worship him only and love, revere, and trust him above all else. So the, the careful reader here notes that I should worship him only, as sort of set aside, and then love, revere, and trust him above all else. All right, so what's going on here? I should worship him only. It doesn't say, I should love, revere, and trust him only. It says, I should worship him only. This sort of designates worship in this uh, a distinct category, distinct action that we do, that's distinct from love, revering, and trusting. So we should worship him only. Worship means something like, um, ascri- well, technically it means something like ascribing worth to something. But that only, only helps us so far here. Worship in its more technical sense means that which you revere as a god. <laughs> that which you treat as worth as being god. So there's only one thing to worship, and that is God. Worship the Lord Lord your God alone. So I should worship God only and love, revere, and trust him above all else. That suggests that there are other things that one might love, revere, and trust, and yet there's a, there's a sense of priority there. One loves, reveres, and trusts God above all else. There is, in other words, an appropriate kind of love towards one's family, towards one's neighbor, um, towards one's country, towards one's city, 
right? There are all manners of appropriate loves, um, as well as revering, right? Um, I could uh, revere somebody for their, their um, you know, amazing athletic skills or something like that, and I can appreciate that. I can revere something to think that, think that thing is good. I can even trust other things besides God, right? I trust my spouse. I trust my priests. I trust my teachers. I trust you all. <laughs> trust you all to, uh, we trust one another in, in, a, in any kind of society, any kind of bonds of friendship. Um, but this is getting at the saying that there are good kinds of, there are, there are many kinds of, of love, reverence, trust, uh, but there is one that who, whom we love, revere, and trust above all else. And when we look into this a little more, as we'll see, as see as we go along, um, the temptation to worship other gods is about trying to make any other sort of thing that's not God, to put it from that love and trust and revere in its own category and to move it over into the worship category, right? To move it over into the status of a good thing that God has called me to love, revere, and trust in an ordered manner. That's what Augustine called the order of love. There's an appropriate kind of love that is, that is owed to one's spouse or country or city, that sort of thing. And then there is a love to God, which is that which is loved above all else and is exclusively the category of worship, that which we see as a God, that which we see as giving life, existence, uh, that, which we, that which we see as um, administering judgment, right? Administering... Um, you know, executing righteousness, that sort of thing. So that's, there's one category of worship, and that is what is owed to God, the one, the one true God. Uh, and then there is an appropriate manner of love, revere, and trust for everything else beneath God, right? So we're trying to, trying to map some, some categories here for understanding what kinds of things is it to, what kind of thing is it to worship God and what kind of thing is it to worship something that's not God? So what does it mean to say you shall have no other gods? Does that make sense? I want to pause there and see what's, what's questions are emerging at this point. Yeah. Mm. Mm, yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> If that one doesn't work out, it's not like you can say, you, can, you can't shop around. <laughs> yeah. 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 To be like this God who also 
humbles himself. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to add some things. Yeah, right. Yes. Yeah. That's right. It's part of, it's a very political side of that too. The Pharaoh sort of gets his authority as a sort of divine sonship, right? He, they have this category of divine sonship, which is, you know, how does Christ fit into that? But they, they do something very different with that. But yeah, that's absolutely right. Sort of emperor worship emerges in this context. You worship uh, the emperor as a way of, right? That's the, you know, if, if your emperor is not, uh, you know, semi-divine or semi-divine or at least supremely blessed above, anointed above all others, that well then your, your, your empire's in chaos and it's going to result in political chaos. It's going to uh, wreak havoc for, for the way things run. And likewise to the point about um, uh, conceptions of, of divinity in, in the ancient world, right? There are all these, um, that, is the, that is the primary posture <laughs> towards which you approach the gods, right? You, you say, I am wanting to have children, uh, and so I, I worship at, you know, the statue of Asherah uh, as this fertility god. Uh, there's, there's gods who, who you know, are specifically you know, over the weather or, or, or economics. Primarily, these things that are beyond our control, right? These things in which we personally can't control, we can't exert our own power over, um, and so we say, well, if I, if I offer these sacrifices, if I do this, if I do this, you do this. It emerges out of, out of this very uh, contractual sort of understanding. Um, I will worship at, at your statue, at your altars, you know, Baal, if you provide this, if you provide protection from my enemies. Say. And then if I'm getting hounded over here from my enemies... Right? If they're still attacking, you're like, I thought I was doing everything right. Well, keep piling on the sacrifices, right? Keep upping the, the sort of, or switch, yeah, keep, yeah, I'm either doing something wrong and I need to do more. I need to offer more sacrifices or, you know, uh, or, or, yeah, switch, switch gods. Right? And so it's this, it is this very, not so much a covenantal relationship as a, as a contractual relationship. I do this, you do that. And again, it's very, um, very interesting how the same sort of mindset will, will creep into, into our own uh, relationship with God. When God calls us, as you said, to a very different kind of relationship, one in which God isn't saying, uh, God doesn't present himself as a finicky God who, is, who gets hungry and sleepy and, and needs sacrifices to feed on, right? He is, a, he is the God who provides the, his own sacrifice. He is the God who doesn't, isn't in need of our, our, our things, our, our offerings, our presentations, but invites us into that kind of relationship, invites us into this way of being in the world uh, in which he can pour his, his love upon us. He's a God who wants to bless, a God who wants to pour out grace um, and, and wants that for us, right? He, again, it's not something that, because he, he needs things. As again, as we set this out in the beginning and trying to, trying to paint this picture of what does it mean for, for Christians to say that there's one God, well, it's a God who is the source of all existence, not a God who is, who is needy, who is, who is dependent. He is, he is independent in the sense that he is the source of all being. Um, 
and so, so again, it's a very, a very different conception, a very different sort of metaphysical conception on the one hand, but then a very different sort of existential relationship on the other. God invites us into this, this kind of way of being in a very different way than this contractual, I do this, you do that kind of relationship. That's good. Yeah, the, 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 I should say, too, the grounding any sort of uh, moral or ethical life commandments in this understanding of monotheism is absolutely central to both Christianity and Judaism. They understood that this understanding that there's one God as, as the, the center of things. That's the first, both in, in order here, but it's also first in sort of priority. Everything else flows from this conception of who God is. The shape of the Christian moral life absolutely flows from and it draws from its orientation in there's one God. Okay, so we're, there's nothing in, in life more important than God. Uh, we worship God only and love, revere, and trust him above all else. Uh, let's keep going. Question 271. Why are you tempted to worship other things instead of God? I am tempted because my sinful heart seeks my own desires above all else and pursues those things which falsely promise to fulfill them. This is just good classic Augustinian theology in, uh, in, in Anglican form. Uh, so where does, so, so we have this command, have, I am the Lord your God, She'll have not have any other gods. Well, we, well, a good sort of question is, well, why do we worship other gods? Why do we follow after these, these other things? Um, and this, this is rooting this question in the very, uh, in what the scriptures will call, well, in what Christian tradition calls original sin, this sort of foundational sin that we look back to in the Garden of Eden. What is the sort of, fundamental sin, and it's this seeking my own desires above all else and pursuing those things which falsely promise to fulfill them. So if the alternative to, if God calls us to seek him above all else, the temptation of sin, the fundamental move away from that is to say no. (laughs) It's to look inward, to look into one's own desires and to see how they can be fulfilled with things around them. So I'm tempted because my sinful heart seeks my own desires above all else. So instead of trusting God above all else, we look to our own desires and how those, uh, how we can, those can be fulfilled, how those can be satisfied. Yeah, Taylor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Something. So the question is something is like: um, Is there a problem with seeking your own desires, or is there a problem with the desires that you have? Right. So is there is there a problem with you desiring your own good? Uh, would be one way to one way to phrase it. Is there a problem with desire itself? <laughs> 
Or is there a problem with the things that you desire? Or both. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, but is there, I think Taylor's, Taylor's getting at a great, a great point here, which is, is there a problem with, des- with desiring my own good? Yeah. But yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, David. Yeah. Yeah. And I think Taylor's raising, what Taylor's raising is there, is there a question, a fundamental issue with the desiring faculty in the human being? Or is there a problem with the way that they're, that they're disordered? That the faculty is disordered towards different objects? And the, 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 because the, the corollary of saying, uh, the desiring faculty is corrupt. There's something wrong with desiring per se. The, what happens when you go with that is to say, your desi- your desiring itself is bad. You should just, what happens is you should say, well, then you need to, uh, uh, the life with God is a life of, of duty and, and submission, and um, it doesn't matter whether you're, uh, you're 
happy or, or blessed or, or whatever these things. Not, not that you're wanting the good things. Um, but largely, Christian tradition has said, and that's a lot of, uh, you, you do hear that in much contemporary Christian, Christian theology, but what most of Christian tradition has said is that, um, is that the faculty of, of desire or love is how humans were made. Humans were made to, to love. That's, again, to get at what worship is. Humans were made to not only think that God is the one true God, but to love the one true God. And so that humans are, are ordered, are made with this desiring faculty um, that the problem is not the faculty itself, but where it's aimed, right? It's often aimed. In a, in a sinful world, it's aimed at anything else except for God, right? It's turned these, um, what, what are otherwise good things in the world, say friendship, work, uh, all, all of these things, um, we've turned these things by desiring them above God, instead of God, we have, we have in turn hampered the desiring faculty. We, <laughs> we are not allowing the desiring faculty to be what it should be, which is, again, made to desire God. It's made to be fulfilled uh, in God. Um, this is a sort of classic sort of C.S. Lewis uh, argument for the, for, uh, it's part of C.S. Lewis's argument for the existence of God is this Augustinian idea that, uh, well, if you find yourself with these infinite desires, uh, perhaps it's because your desires are not, cannot be satiated by anything that you find less than God, right? You have a sort of desiring faculty that is um, expansive, infinite in a way, and can only be satisfied with uh, an infinite God. It can only, as Augustine says, our hearts are restless until we rest in, in God. And until then, we go around um, shopping at, at the, uh, the idol factories uh, looking for something to, to quench that desire. All that language of, of desire, of thirst, of hunger, these very, very uh, bodily sort of uh, emotions that get us into, into the appetite. It's one, it's, it's one level lower than, than the head. We could, we're happy to go around saying, confessing that, oh, there's only one true God and, um, and I, I believe that and I have, I don't have any idols. I don't have any Baal statues down in the basement. So not an idolater. First commandment. Not a real problem for me. Right? But then when we look at the heart, when we look at the desiring faculty, we find all sorts of ways in which our, our desires have gone astray and that we do, in fact, find ourselves saying, oh, I actually do think I would be secure in life if I had more money. I do think I would be happier if uh, my children were better behaved, right? I do <laughs> think... I would, I would gain happiness from, from these sorts of things. I, I would get, if only, we, when we find ourselves saying things like, if only I had X, well, fill in the blank for you. If only I had X, then I would be, and again, fill in the blank, happy, content, um, what the, the scriptures would say, blessed, right? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. It gets you back in that sort of relationship of a contractual relationship. Look at me and how much I'm suffering for you, God. How much I'm denying myself for for you. And bless me, you know, or something. Acknowledge me. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We do. Yeah. I, you know, at some point, Nicholas, as Father Nicholas, is going to say, "We need to we need to move along here," but not <laughs> not right now. Yes. Yeah. Yes. 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 Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So the one answer to that would be that uh, God, <laughs> the scriptures would absolutely want you to belittle other gods. And, and you get a lot of that in, in especially Old Testament scriptures, right? You get a, a lot of, I mean, a lot of the language about idolatry is the language of warfare, Right? It's a it's a it's a battle, right? And God presents Himself as cleaning out uh, cleaning out of the idols. Um, not the best, maybe not the best approach to take with your children, and uh, <laughs> I, I just uh, trying to uh, um, be live in the world. <laughs> um, a different way of not a different way. Um, uh, another way of of approaching that is to is to talk about um, how God has sort of uh, implanted seeds of God of 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 God's self throughout the world, and different cultures, different different religions are are grasping at at the divine in different ways. They're uh, they're attempting to get at blessedness, right? There, it's a way of trying to get at happiness. Uh, I, I, maybe not happiness, but a way of getting at what is, um, what is the good life or what is flourishing. Different, different religions have, have different ways of, of naming this. And Christians are, are happy to say that that is, on the one hand, uh, false. Simply, simply put, there are, no other, there are no other gods per se. Um, and yet, on the other hand, there is a way in which people are um, seeking after, uh, seeing elements of the divine um, 
in life, and, and that has come to be named in different ways in different cultures. Um, so the, the early Christian writer Justin Martyr called these the seeds of the Logos. <laughs> there is one Logos, Christ, right? And yet there are uh, Logoi, little Logos, little seeds uh, implanted all throughout the world. Um, because why? Because there's no other God, right? There's only one God. Um, and there's only one God who has ordered all things providentially. Um, and so the seeds, are, the seeds of, of the Logos are out there in the world, uh, and yet we, we misread them, we, we mishear them, we don't see them correctly, uh, we misapprehend. And, and sometimes disastrous ways. We could, uh, uh, at some point we should talk about when Paul is writing to the Corinthians about idolatry, right? And he says, on the one hand, we know there's no other, there's no other gods, and yet, for those who share in idolatrous meals, right, idolatrous practices, idolatrous rituals, they are in some sense sharing with the demonic, right? And that's, that's real. Hang on one second. Father Nicholas said. That's a great. <laughs> oh, that's such an awesome question. Yeah, there was this. This. Um, I'm so sorry that this is the first thing that comes to mind. But the in the Reformation, the there was this. You have the Protestants and Catholics, right? And you have these people. You have the Protestants are saying, you know, all the all the Catholic idolatry, all the Catholic stuff is superstition and idolatry. If you participate in that, you know. You're done. So you have these Protestants, especially you have these French Protestants, so French is Catholic, French goes Catholic, uh, and then you have all these Protestants then that are in there that are still like, I'm Protestant on the inside, but like, you know, still like, is this okay? Like, is anybody? And there's this question, this is the exact question that emerges, because like, well, I'm not doing the Catholic thing in my heart, right? But I'm with my body. I'm doing these things, right? They call these groups the uh, the Nicodemites. Just a great name, right? Why why Nicodemites? Nicodemus. What does Nicodemus do? He's one of the Jews. He's a Pharisee. He's a good he's a good Pharisee. But he goes to Jesus at night. And he's like, 
during the daytime, right? So this is the question. Um, and it raises this question, though, about what, how our, um, our, our bodily public ritual life, uh, where does it hit with the inner life, right? On the one hand, we want to say, uh, those are very connected, right? All that we do here with our bodies in church, we kneel, we, we genuflect, we cross ourselves, all of this stuff we do, we do that because there is this absolutely, there's a tight relationship between what happens in the body and what happens in the soul, <laughs> right? And we can't separate those. Um, on the one hand, we don't want to simply conflate those two and to say that um, bodily life just simply is ritual life. So there's somewhere in between. I don't, I don't have a line for you. Uh, I wish I could draw a line um, somewhere that would make things much more clearly. But we want to at least be cognizant of those two things, that there is, on the one hand, not a separation between bodily action, ritual, uh, a communal context, um, and then on the other hand, they're not simply the same thing. Amen. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I think absolutely. Pointing towards um, art and imagery, other other cultural artifacts, it, Asian Christian, a- African, absolutely. So there's lots. We have lots of good good examples of the way in which Christians have reflected on this. Is if Christ is for everyone, if Christ is truly, and again, it goes back to this fundamental principle: if there's only one God, then he, then he must be the God of everyone. And so where, where is he already been present in, in life before the missionaries got there, right? God wasn't just absent, right? God was there already. And then where did, how have, have missionaries uh, changed that? And then how, in turn, has that impacted Christianity as well? Amazing, amazing stuff that happens in that, in that dynamic. We could we could make it more we could make it less simple. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Mm. Yeah. Original sin is to get at naming that we don't just learn this by habit, like uh, like babies are born pure. And they, if they grew up in a sort of a totally different culture, an unfallen culture, you know, they would be just fine. It's to say that now the babies would still find a way to uh, desire their own 
you don't have to, you know, I guess, and I says famously mean things about babies, but, uh, you know, how they're, you can see original sin in the nursing infant greedily, you know, looking for the milk, you know. Um, there's, there's better or worse ways to interpret that. Um, but, um, but the, yeah, but the original sin is getting at that, um, at that, that, that idea of this is sort of built into post-fall life is this, um, a, a new kind of natural, right? It's not the original meaning of the natural. <laughs> Naturally, we were made to desire God, but there's a different kind of post-baptism, post-lapsarian, post-fall, after the lapse, a kind of a new kind of natural, which is inclined towards um, the self, uh, pleasing, pleasing the self above, above all. I think, yeah, yeah, I think so. Okay. Um, so let's see. You two seven. Let's do question two seventy two. How are you tempted to worship other gods? I am tempted to trust in myself, my pleasures, my possessions, my relationships, and my success wrongly believing that they will bring me happiness, security, and meaning. I am also tempted to believe superstitions and false religious claims and to reject God's call to worship him alone. So there's a lot in this, and a lot of it we've been, we've been circling around um, uh, as, we, as we've been talking here. So I'm tempted, first of all, to trust in myself, my pleasures, possessions, relationships, all these, there's a, again, that sense of trust. What is the fundamental relationship with that God calls us into? It's one of believing certain things to be true, yes, but it's also a relationship of trust. Um, and, and that's where we find ourselves, you know, in this state where we trust in myself, you know, I trust my own uh, intellect or my own, my charming, you know, sense of humor, uh, to to get by, to be to be well liked, to be successful. I I trust in in pleasures, um, in uh, in sex, in a good good food, in in a, in a good drink, right? I trust in these things. I say ah, these things. If I have that, I will I will attain that sort of happiness or or security, right? There's a, especially with um, you know people. We'll talk about this especially in. Um, I see this in like marriage marriage counseling books for some reason, but you can always find the, the two different partners will often have different ideas about what money is, right? For one of you, money is security, <laughs> and so you need to to uh, spend money in ways that that bring more security in life. And for the other person, it's something else. It's like it's for like having fun and doing fun things. Somehow it's never the same, you know. With whatever it is, <laughs> no matter what your relationship, it's always never the same. But it's often this sort of uh, you know, counselors will say you can just just point at that. It just just poke at that a little bit and see what well, what is what is money doing for you? What is it? What are you trying to to get out of that? And it's, it's often very illuminating, like uh, like a sign on your car telling you something's wrong. What do you, what is it you're getting at? What do you want when you want more money? Uh, we trust in our possessions, right? We trust in our relationships. Um, Especially if you're somebody like me who doesn't have a lot of money, you know, you trust in your relationships to 
you know, find happiness, find success, well-being. Um, wrongly believing that they will bring me happiness, security, and meaning. Again, what is God? What is what does God do? God is the one who gives meaning, purpose, security, happiness, blessedness. Right? God is the only one that can give these things. Simply by the, the nature of that's the way the world was made. It goes back to that very first thing we were talking about. God is, there is no other source of beings. God isn't just one thing in the world that can allocate resources to you, right, to get you your security. God is that which provides, who is the, the meaning of existence itself and from whom we all get, get our things, get our happiness, security. So God has ordered the world in this way. Um, and, and yet we're tempted to find anything else, anything else in the world uh, to get that, that thing which only, only God can give. Um, happiness, blessedness, security, meaning. Okay, let's, we have, let's do uh, question 273. Can you worship and serve God perfectly? No. Only our Lord Jesus Christ worshiped and served God perfectly. But I can seek to imitate Christ, knowing that my worship and service are acceptable to God through him. Once again, these commandments are are always pointing us back to Christ. They're always pointing us to Christ as both the fullness of what it looks like to, uh, to live like God, because he is God. So in Christ, we see the fullness of what the Ten Commandments sketch out for us, In Christ, we see what it means to say, you shall have no other gods, right? Uh, And and we see this especially in Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, right? He is is tempted precisely along these lines to have another god, to serve another god. And at every point in this, or we see this in the garden, right? We see this every time. We see Christ tempted with this to be something, to to serve someone other than God. And yet we see the perfect image of what it looks like to say, I shall have no other gods. And he's tempted to serve his, himself, exactly. Yeah. Yes, right. And that's, that's the kind of way we've been, yeah, absolutely. Mm. Yeah, yes, yes. If I could avoid, avoid, again, where uh, Father Jonathan's wonderful, wonderful homily today. For those who haven't heard it yet, I, I look, you're, you're in for a treat. But um, yes, absolutely. Christ is tempted in, in every way as we are, and yet Christ uh, at every point rejects the temptation, shows us what um, perfect humility, obedience, submission, but also desire, right? Christ shows us what it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Christ is this image for us. And where we, we fail at this every time, we are also invited through Christ, through our relationship with Christ, through belonging to Christ, to, uh, to, be, to know that our service and worship is, is acceptable to him. God isn't, isn't up there saying, not good enough, Taylor, not good enough. No, our, our worship and service is acceptable to God through Christ. Um, this has been a, a wonderful, fruitful morning. Thank you all. Let me close this, close in prayer.
Almighty God, you alone have, have created and you have more wonderfully redeemed human nature. Call us out of our idols. Call us into love of you only above all else. Um, help us to name our idols, to uncover the idols of the heart and to, to reject them, to turn, turn away from our idols and to love you and serve you above all else. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. All right, we'll begin in just a bit. Thanks.